Welcome to the Remote Leadership Podcast. I'm Deborah Dinocenzo. For more than two decades, I've helped organizations and leaders successfully go virtual. Join me to learn tips, techniques, and skills that leaders and teams in your organization can implement now to achieve effectiveness in our evolving remote workplace. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Remote Leadership Podcast. As the workplace continues evolving to more hybrid models, I've been focused, as most of you know, on identifying the skills, behaviors, and techniques that successful leaders are applying in the hybrid workspace. My guest today is actively involved in the remote workplace and leads a hybrid team. So I'm looking forward to the insights that she'll share with us today. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Laura Moody, Director of Product Management, Pharma North America at Syntagon, which provides processing and packaging technology in the pharmaceutical and food industry. Laura is a cellular and molecular biologist with experience as a product manager prior to being promoted to director of product management. Laura has a team of two direct reports, not both of them co-located with her. And Laura has 20 years of experience in life sciences with roles in both academia and industry. Thank you for joining me today, Laura, and welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation. I'm looking forward to it as well. So um, share with our listeners today a little bit about um, how your team is structured, how your organization is structured, and who all you need to work with, collaborate with um, from a distance. Sure, I'd happy be happy to. So I have a team of two direct reports, which you've already mentioned. One is co-located with me in Minneapolis, where our North American headquarters is. And another direct report is located on the West Coast. So he is entirely remote. Uh, and the woman that is co-located with me, we have a hybrid work structure with three days in the office and two days remote. Okay. Um, is that do you are you also hybrid in that way? I am. Yes, I I like to work from home on Fridays, but the rest of the week I I do my best to come into the office unless I'm traveling for work. Okay. All right. So how how long have you been doing the hybrid thing with your team and I I'm assuming you have collaborators that you work with who are not co-located with you as well? Yes, that's right. So Ever since I started with Syntagon um, five years ago, I've been working closely with colleagues, uh, not only in Minneapolis, but also at our headquarters in Germany, as well as some other international sites. So all of my work time with this company, I would say I've been learning tips and tricks on how to work with people not in the same room. Um, And we know in 2020, 2021, the push towards remote work or working from home was something that we had to undertake. So working with all of the technology necessary, uh, outfitting a home office, that was something that I had to do starting in 2020. But um, uh, working with people not co-located with me, back to your original question, has been something that I've been doing for the past five years. Okay. 
So what are some of your most important uh, tips, tricks, techniques that you've learned to apply in working with people who are not um, co-located on site with you? That's a good question. I think for me personally, I always like to have a camera on so I can see facial expressions or hand gestures that the person I'm talking to um, is giving me, is providing me that instantaneous feedback. But uh, that's my own personal preference. And I know that I have certain colleagues that don't like to have the camera on. And I try to respect that as much as I can. I, I've been known to um, request that we turn cameras on if it's a larger group meeting. And I've also found that many of my colleagues overseas are more inclined to have their camera on versus my North American colleagues seem to default to cameras off. I don't know if that's a cultural, uh, if that's a cultural takeaway, or if it's just uh, the working environment that we have made ourselves. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, there can't be that many bad hair days, right? <laughs> so, um, I'm a huge advocate like you of cameras on uh, because I, you know, I've been doing this for over 20 years. So early, early on in all of this, when I, I published my first book in 1999 called 101 Tips for Telecommuters, when we didn't really know much about what telecommuting really even was. And we had, we were so lacking in sophistication in terms of technology to support this, but we still had dial up AOL for email. Remember? And you might not remember you're young. But oh um, no, I remember. I okay. remember that modem. <laughs> yes, yeah, that whole modem thing, and and that's all we had was email and uh, you know teleconferences, and we moaned about how awful it was. We you know we didn't have the visual cues and we couldn't see each other, and now we can see each other and we turn cameras off. So um, I, I do think it's somewhat a cultural thing. I do think it it facilitates multitasking in in ways that would not happen if we were sitting in the room together. I mean, not that we're not all in meetings on site where people are still looking at their phones, right? But it's less comfortable doing that when you're trying making eye contact with people and they're not looking at you. So I like you, I'm a big advocate of cameras on. I think it's the best way. I'm also, a, a, one of my big messages always is we need to... S- replicate and simulate what we what we would do if we were able to be on site together and the best way to do that with remote meetings virtual meetings is to have those cameras on so we can see each other so i i, I laud you for doing that so i have a question for you how what do you feel about the mute button now if you're if you're in a larger a larger meeting do you want people to go on mute when they're not participating or do you like people to stay with their microphones on because you can respond more quickly than having to oh, quick find the mute button? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, because how many times is it? Wait, wait, you're on mute. You're on mute. <laughs> exactly. oh, wait, oh, wait, I was on mute. So mm-hmm. the problem with larger meetings, and I do a lot of, you know, large meetings and board meetings and training with larger groups. If you don't have people mute, there's way too much um, interference, static, dogs barking, phones ringing. Uh, cats walking across the screen. I'm, I'm usually tolerant of cats walking across the screen. I think that's cute. They're you, they're usually pretty quiet, but it does erode the audio quality 
if it's a large group. So I do think it's important to maximize audio quality by asking people to now, to turn uh, to mute. Uh, actually, the meeting leader can mute everybody in on in either Teams or Zoom or most most of these technologies that we use. So now, in small groups, though, I, you know, you and I aren't muting when we're not talking because it's mm-hmm. a more natural kind of conversation and dialogue. Um, I don't see any reason to have people mute in small groups, but. Um, but I, I would say in large groups, and again, in large groups, often it's mostly somebody presenting um, as opposed to a lot of interaction because it's much harder to do a lot of interaction. Now, if you move people to breakout rooms, then you know I think people need to unmute so they can engage. That's the whole purpose of moving them to a breakout room. And I do that a lot with uh, online training. Uh, using breakout rooms for discussion and, uh, you know, skill practices, role plays, things like that. So share with us a little bit about um, the collaboration you have to do with people that aren't direct reports and um, that any challenges working remotely with people with whom you have to get things done, but they're not necessarily under your control. Mm, That's a great question. So there are, this has, this answer has different layers and whether or not it is somebody who I'm co-located with, I find that if I, if they don't report to me, but I still need them to get things done, I'd love to just walk to someone's desk and just have a conversation impromptu face-to-face because they can see the passion in your body language and, and the fact that you got up and you found them at a time that works for both of you to discuss something and you can really reiterate um, the timing behind a request you might have and give a little bit more detail beyond what an email might say. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like to do that when it's somebody that's located in the same uh, building that I'm in. Right. Now, if I'm working with colleagues that are either remote within my region or in other regions around the world. My default is an email because I I'd like to include a lot of detail. And I find that if I am talking about something, I might just ramble on and might lose the thread a little bit. So if I can capture it in written form and send an email, put all my thoughts uh, in the right order, send it out and then bold specific items that I'm requesting within the email text. I either use bold or underline, and then I'll repeat that at the end of the message as well. Like I need this by this date. Um, And then I'll add a reminder to my own calendar to follow up on that request via email a day before that due date that I've given. Um, And then ask if you have any questions, if I can help you in any way to help get this done, please let me know. And then if the timeline has passed and I haven't gotten the information I need, that's when I'll set schedule a call. I'll just put something on someone's calendar so we can talk it through um, instead of relying on that email format. Of course, if they're co-located, you might just pop by their office, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But if, yeah. I, if I can't do that, then I default to email. And then if email doesn't work, then we'll do the, we'll do the phone call. Okay. So you would do a phone call before scheduling a Teams or a Zoom meeting? I just put it, I just put a meeting invite 
direct. I just send the meeting invite directly, and that's the okay. time that I I check the calendar to make sure they're available, find time okay. that works for both of us, mm -hmm. and then place it on their calendar and instead of an impromptu phone call. Because if there's something that I'm asking for, I'll put that in the body of the the meeting invite so they can prepare themselves. I just I don't want to catch anybody off guard. Right, right, right. And you're doing mostly it's follow up, so they they know right. what. And you're only you're only pinging that. them because they haven't followed through. Correct. So if they followed through, then you're sending a, another email to thank them, probably. And, you know, that's, that's kind right. of interesting because a lot of organizations I work with are, oh, burdened by email. Um, you know, mm -hmm. too much email. They're tired of email. Too many people copy too many people on email. So do you have any guidelines for yourself in terms of? how you use email so that it's not burdensome for you and all your recipients? No, great question. So I try, I'm not 100%, uh, I don't do this 100% of the time, but I try to only respond to emails if I have something to contribute. Okay. If it's just a thanks, yeah, that's that email does not need to be sent. I don't do this, but I know others that I work with do, they have a setting in their Outlook where their inbox only populates with emails that are directly sent to them. And then they'll have a different folder for emails where they're added in CC. Okay. So what comes up in their inbox that they see is information that's specific to them and not just a, hey, this is a courtesy. Um, I am a detailed person, so I like to see all of those emails, even if it means I come, uh, I, I turn the computer on and I see that I have 25 emails that was sent overnight. It's okay with me. Yeah. I would nope. rather know than be surprised about something in the future. Well, you're a scientist, so you're trained <laughs> to be into details. I need all and, of the info. That's yeah, right. yeah. And I'm assuming some of the emails that you're sending and information projects you're working on are technical aspects to it where an email can provide that level of detail can be more clarifying um, and that, you know, that's a useful tool in, in those cases. But I do hear a lot of angst about, about email. How about ch text chatting? Uh, is that uh, a tool that you all use much? Yes. So for those quick, quick, like, oh, thanks, or, hey, did you get this? Or, hey, what are you planning? Or what are you thinking about this topic that came up in this meeting? I love to do a quick chat for that. I don't want to see it in my inbox, but I love, we use Teams in my organization. So a quick chat, a thumbs up if, if I've gotten information back quickly. I also try to only send chats when I see that the person that I'm trying to communicate with is green. So that means they're available. Yeah. I also know that they'll be able to get back to me quickly. Um, if I see that they're in a meeting or have the do not, uh, do not disturb uh, indicator up. Mm -hmm. I I like to respect that because I use chat for those really quick responses that don't require a detailed email. And ideally I need the information as fast as possible. Right. Or, or that leads to, we really need to talk about this in, in greater depth. And so let's schedule a meeting, but um, mm -hmm. you can probably weed out a lot of that with, uh, with uh, chatting. Yeah. Um, which is, is very efficient. So, um, and is that's done within Teams or Outlook? 
that's through teams. Through teams, okay. And the, the, another indicator or another thing that I like to consider is also the person that I'm talking to. Because there are some people that really love chat and that's their primary method for communication. They're quick, direct to the point. But there's other people that prefer a phone call. So depending on my relationship with a colleague or the type of information I need, some colleagues are more open and uh, happy to have a quick phone call instead of just a quick chat. But those yeah. phone calls might be because there's a little bit more information that we need to convey and a chat <laughs> just starts to get too long when you start to write it out. Well, that's interesting because in uh, most of the work I do with organizations with leaders, a lot of times I'm still getting asked the question, what, you know, how, what's the best way to communicate and how often should I communicate? You know, and the answer is, well, it all depends. Uh, you know, how you communicate, you know, what, what, you know, people prefer the, the nature and content of what you're communicating. Does it re really require the documentation and detail of, of an email um, or, or an attachment to an email, even, you know, it, there might be much more involved. Um, so, you know, my response usually is, well, it all depends. And really the magic is in the mix. You have to adapt and do what is appropriate for each situation and each person, which kind of then speaks to the whole notion of, again, of emotional intelligence and being sensitive to what people want and need and what they're comfortable with. You know, some people still aren't comfortable, to, you know, doing chats. And as, as you're sharing with us, some people really don't like to be on camera or, uh, you know, want to not put on more than the pajamas they got up in. Uh, we, you know, we don't know if we can't see them. And so, mm -hmm. but, you know, it, again, it, it really is the magic is in the mix. You have to use, I mean, we have a wonderful array of technologies now to use. And so um, having all these choices and these ways to communicate in so many different forms is a mm -hmm. real godsend compared to what we were dealing with, you know, 15 years ago, which was not much. <laughs> Great point. Another thing that I also keep in mind is generational preferences. Now, I know even for myself, I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but I'm of the generation where uh, texting was just starting to come into our communication uh, uh, style, but we would still pick up the phone to call, call our friends or plan what we're gonna do mm -hmm. if we're gonna go out that night. But I'm finding more and more uh, with younger generations that text is the primary form of communication and yep. picking up the phone is less and less common. So I also try to keep that in mind when I'm talking to colleagues or direct reports, what they might be most comfortable in doing. And luckily I've gotten a mix of all different forms of communication so I can adapt. Yes, um, yes, that's good. That's good. And you're right, I'm, you know, without, boxing it into generational categories, but it is true um, that uh, people who are more comfortable with texting, kind of my, my sense is they react um, as though they're bothered by an actual phone call. It's like, well, it's got to be some raging emergency to call somebody. Whereas um, and, and there, there might be some differences in terms of gender as well I don't know 
that that would be an interesting thing to study actually you know preferences mm-hmm. somebody's probably done a study on that but um what i hear you saying and this is a great takeaway uh for our listeners is that uh people have different preferences different needs and as a leader adapting to those and being sensitive to their preferences uh, so long as it meets the need of the communication that you're trying to uh, mm-hmm. undertake uh, that that's a smart thing to do I think so. I think it helps build trust and uh, openness with communication as well. If you are a leader that is easy to communicate with, then you're going to get more uh, communication coming your way from direct reports. Absolutely. Modeling that is a great thing. So so on the international front, are there any particular challenges? Uh, I don't know if the other organizations you've worked with have been um, international but um, in terms of what you're experiencing post-COVID, uh, working with people around the globe, are there any particular challenges that you've had to, to confront or that you've created solutions for that are unique to a, an international organization? Hmm, that is a great question. So I would say the biggest challenge is a challenge that we've had before COVID and since COVID and always will, no matter what, unless somebody come somebody invents a time machine, it's time zones, time zone zone differences. That is always the most difficult. And um, sitting in the States, I'm reaching my colleagues when they're ending their workday. So they've had a whole day to build up and they have all of this information that they need from their U S colleagues. And then we, even when we, I mean, I'm in the middle of the country, so I wake up, I'll check my work email, maybe at 6.30, 7 in the morning, and I already have uh, emails that have been coming in since 1 a.m. that I instantly feel like I'm behind (laughs) to get them answers because I don't want them to wait. I don't want my time zone difference to be slowing down the work that they need to do. So that's always a challenge, no matter... um, whether you're working remote or in the office, if you have offices throughout different areas of the world, it's difficult to deal with. Yeah. You know, what came to my mind as you were talking is that, you know, we, when we shifted to the 24 hour news cycle, you know, when we got away from, you got your news in the morning and then you got your evening news at 6 PM Eastern um, and moved to the 24 hour news cycle with so many news sources now streaming out news constantly all day long and all night long by the way um i mean it's you know we've got the 24-hour news cycle and we've got the 24-hour work day if you're part of a global organization and i really resonate with your sense that you know you here you are up early 6 30 in the morning and uh, still feeling behind because you have colleagues on the other side of the planet uh who have been working for six hours and uh they're not going to wait till it's the work day in your time zone to start sending stuff. So this is a real challenge for organizations to manage that and for people not to feel like they can't keep up. So are there any techniques that you've employed or that your organization um, has encouraged people to adopt to try to manage that? And and how do you deal with the weekend stuff? Mm. That's a really great question. So I think I've mentioned that we use Teams and 
we have, I think, been doing a very good job in my organization in creating teams dedicated to specific projects and then having people in real time add information to those teams in whatever region of the world that they're working in. And then being able to keep up with that constant uh, strain of information uh, whenever you wake up and log in for the day, that keeps people on top of what's been happening overnight when they've been asleep um, and allows that open, open uh, string of communication that seems like it's constantly ongoing. It's not, okay, well, this day, I sent this email with this information. In our chat function, we can continue the conversation no matter what time of the day it is anywhere. And then sharing files that can be edited at the same time through uh, SharePoint is also great. Instead of sending documents via email and then you have to make sure that you make your changes and then send the updated copy back to another colleague having shared documentation where multiple people can be editing it at the same time has really helped us improve our efficiency in information sharing. Okay, great. So as we wrap up, I'd be curious about your advice for other remote and hybrid leaders in terms of the top three things they should either keep in mind or be doing every day in being successful as remote or hybrid leaders and ensuring that they have successful and effective teams? Mm, great, great question. So number one, make sure you have a regularly scheduled check-in, not only with your direct reports that might be on site with you, but are also uh, remote. And when you have those check-ins, whether they be weekly, bi-weekly, monthly, Turn your camera on so it feels like you're having that conversation face-to-face. -face. Uh, helps build trust and helps keep that, keep that information flowing, keep the doors of communication wide open. I would also encourage the same with team meetings. So besides your one-on-ones with each direct report, which are very important to make sure that goals are set and check progress, but also to have the whole team get together at least once, once a month. That's what I do for my team. Cameras on. And not only do we go over our joint goals or hot topics, things that might need special attention from the group, but we also learn from each other and share best, best practices amongst the group. Now, I have a group of subject matter experts, so we have different areas of expertise, but you'd be surprised uh, how much we're able to learn from each other. Even though we have different areas of specialty, techniques, tips, tricks, that is, uh, that's easy to share cross-functionally, and we can, we can learn from each other that way. Camera's always on, and I always like to have... Um, a different leader of that group. So even though I am, I am the, the manager for two direct reports, I like to change who's leading that group meeting every month. Excellent. Just yes. so everybody has a sense of ownership of the group and really feels like they're part of a team. So those are some of the some of the tips and tricks that I'd like to share yeah. with our listeners. Those are some great points. Uh, the the well, of course, cameras on. You and I are a big advocate mm -hmm. of that. Um, and sharing, rotating leadership responsibility for meetings, which of course helps you develop 
capability within your team as well, because someday you'll get promoted and you have to have somebody ready to replace you as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that you mentioned, and this is true for many, many, almost all teams that I could think of. Um, everybody has different experiences and different areas of expertise, uh, maybe not the depth that, that your folks have because they're in the sciences, but making sure that that leaders provide an opportunity for people to learn from each other. Uh, you know, learning, we're, we're learning more about learning and the openness to and the ability to learn is a critical factor in success for leaders. So that that's that I'm jotting down a note here. I want to do a podcast on the whole issue of learning. And it's not just about training, right? It's about how we learn every day and learn from each other and demonstrate that as leaders, we're open to learning from others, including those that report to us. So all very important things. A big takeaway, though, we want to remind everybody, cameras on, even though we don't have our cameras on for this podcast. (laughs) You can use your imagination. (laughs) Yes, exactly, exactly. We're adorable. People will get that. So (laughs) anyway, Laura, thank you so much. This has been delightful and valuable, and I'm sure my listeners are uh, appreciative of your time and your insights. Thank you so much for having me. I had a blast. Thanks. This is Deborah with a quick reminder about our Remote Leadership Mastery Program. This coaching program leverages intentional and authentic connections with team members to achieve targeted productivity and profitability. For individual leaders or small leadership groups, this is timely coaching to ensure hybrid leadership excellence. See the show notes for a link to schedule a call with me to learn more or to enroll. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Remote Leadership Podcast. To learn more about how I can help you and your team, your colleagues, and your organization master the skills, systems, and culture for the remote hybrid work environment, See the show notes for ways to reach me or contact me at remoteleadershippodcast.com. Thanks for listening and for always learning.